It's uh, good to be here with you this morning. It's good to worship Christ together, and it is uh, good to be able to turn to God's Word together. So I invite you to join me in the book of Nehemiah. Just to give you a little bit of transparency this morning, there was a little back and forth this week if we were going to uh, go into chapter 5 or finish chapter 4. I don't think Adam minds him picking on him a little bit, but he, he got into my text last week, and I think he even owned up to that. And so uh, we armed wrestle this week, and we ended up saying, you know what, we're going to finish chapter 4. Uh, we want to go through all of God's Word. And so there may be a little bit of overlap uh, this week, and so that'll be okay, because we can't get enough of God's Word. And you probably didn't listen anyway, and you need to hear it again. So, uh, so here we go. Maybe there'll be a better chance if we hear it twice. But uh, we are going to finish chapter 4 this morning in Nehemiah uh, 16 through 23. And so... Um, just a, a good text as we, um, as we finish up this chapter this morning. So with that in mind, let us read our text. We'll pray and then we'll dive into it. We'll start in verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So he labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for this text that we come to this morning, Lord. And I pray as we come to this text, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us, that you'd help us to see and to understand. And most of all, would we behold Christ this morning as we exalt his great name. I pray that you keep me from error, Lord, and that you make the name of Jesus great. In his strong and sweet name we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we come to this text, to kind of recap a little bit from Adam uh, in our sermons the past couple of weeks, the people of God, they face insurmountable odds. They face insurmountable odds. We know that they are back and they're building the wall. We know that Nehemiah has come uh, to be a leader in this and to lead the people of God to rebuilding the wall. Uh, we know the temple has been rebuilt. The altar has been rebuilt. The people of God are returning. We've seen this in Ezra. Now Nehemiah's focus, of course, is the wall of God, uh, which has so many uses and purposes, and it's very important that the wall be rebuilt. Uh, but it's not going to be done so easily. There, are, there will be challenges. There will be opposition. And so this is where we were last week we, as we started chapter 4, uh, the opposition to the work that was before the people of God. Uh, their opposition is fierce, uh, specifically and namely last week, and those two uh, men, Sanballat, 
and Tobiah. Uh, they are enemies of God, and they clearly, clearly have reared their head, and so they've made it difficult. They're opposing uh, the rebuilding of the wall. They're opposing the people of God. They're also the fellow Jews. They're uh, in the middle of, uh, I guess, the middle of chapter 4. Verse 12, it said, At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said, said to us ten times, You must return to us. You must return to us. And they know that their task is to build the wall. Uh, they are separated from the families we see. Uh, some of them are in the city and some of their families are outside the city. Uh, and we'll say this several times this morning. This is a big deal. They are not builders. Uh, and they're not warriors. We're going to see their task this morning is to do both build and defend uh, the holy city of God. And they are neither of these things, at least historically, in this particular generation. So they have very difficult odds before them, insurmountable. I like that word. The people of God face insurmountable odds. And so how do they face this impossible situation? They do so the way that we all, from all the, the history of, uh, of those who've looked to and trusted the Lord, the same way we face any opposition, by placing our faith in the Lord. And so we're going to see how the people of God place their faith in the Lord. Uh, they do so, we'll, there are many ways, and we could unpack a lot of different ways, but this morning we want to look at three specific ways that God's people place their faith in the Lord Himself. I'll give you these three ways, and then we'll unpack them. The first is by trusting in God's provision. Secondly, by participating in God's plan. And thirdly, by standing with God's people. So, how do they face this impossible situation? By placing their faith in the Lord and firstly, by trusting in God's provision. So God has to provide, as He always does. It's God's work. It's His plan. It's His, it's His will. And so as He always does, He will provide. And the people of God have to trust in that provision. Now, God could have provided any number of ways for the rebuilding of His wall. But he did not send some neighboring nation with a bunch of building warriors. Now, I, my mind just likes to have fun sometimes and speculate. And so these are completely ludicrous, but they're just fun to think about. He could have sent some giants, right? He could have sent some giants to show up and, and build this wall. He could have sent some early Vikings to show up who were builders and warriors. But he didn't do this. He didn't do these silly things. No one came to help them. And so God had to provide for them in a different way. He did not provide for them any supernatural defense while they built. He could have done that, right? He could have put a bubble around it. He could have sent someone else to, to, uh, to stand guard. He could have had many different ways to defend the building of the wall because there's clear opposition. But instead, he chose a different route. And they trust in God's provision. So what did God do? God provided them a leader. God provided the people of God and leaders. He does this often uh, throughout the story of the Old Testament, throughout the story of God's people. God sends them a leader. God's provision for his people was through his servant, Nehemiah, who we've been looking at, um, obviously, these first few chapters. So his provision was through his servant, Nehemiah. Now, Persia, they considered Nehemiah just this kind of visiting governor, if you will. He was a governor of the province. He's on loan to Jerusalem. Uh, the king knows that he's of the people of Israel. He knows this is where his family's from and his fathers and grandfathers uh, were buried. He knows this, but they are just sending him out as this as his traveling governor, if you will, this temporary governor. But we know that he is far more than just the governor of Persia, that he is indeed God's servant working to advance God's kingdom. This is his role in the rebuilding of the wall at Jerusalem. 
as God's servant advancing God's kingdom. And so we see on display here in chapter 4, we're going to see two specific strengths of Nehemiah, the leader that God has provided. They are strategic leadership and servant leadership. Strategic leadership and servant leadership. And we see this clearly demonstrated in Nehemiah. Now, I've told you before, I mentioned already in Nehemiah as, we've, as we started it, there are many books written about Nehemiah and leadership. And we're not going to delve into to leadership principles this morning specifically. There may be some that, that come up. But uh, as a leader, he leads in two specific ways. One of them is strategic leadership. Uh, and there are many ways in which he demonstrates great strategy. That Nehemiah demonstrates his strategy. First is organization. That he organizes workers by families along the wall. He doesn't just say, okay, guys, y'all go pick a spot. He, he organizes fa uh, families, signs them very specific sections of the wall, which gives them ownership and accountability and these individuals and family. We see communication. Uh, we see there, I believe it's in uh, verse 18, each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And we know what the trumpet does. When it blows the trumpet, they're all going to come together. And so we see communication. And this is a very difficult task. This wall that is being built is about 2.5 miles in length. And so it's a large wall. They're working in different sections. As we see Nehemiah says in this passage here, uh, it says they are separated on the wall far from one another. And so he's got to lead these people not just to build a wall, but to defend themselves in the midst of it. So he does so by organization, communication. He does so by coordination. A leader coordinates. Uh, he has a plan to bring everyone together if they are needed. So he says, y'all go work and spread yourselves out. But when you hear this trumpet, we're going to gather together, he says, uh, to fight. We're going to gather together there in verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. We're going to come back to that amazing line in just a minute. We also see inspiration, that Nehemiah is an inspirational leader. I love, and, and Adam had the verse last week in verse 14, uh, where uh, we see some fear kind of creep into the people of Israel. And he says to them, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, you, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He has this, this rousing speech, and he inspires the men who are there to build and to fight. He's also a leader of invention. In this strategy, um, he in, kind of invents a new thing, an unconventional idea of the sword and the trial. The sword and the trial, and that's a word I'm probably mispronouncing. Trial, trial, you say that, okay? Uh, T-R-O-W-E-L, a tool used to build walls. And so they have to take up this sword and these tools, and this is something... I mean, you can fact check me a little bit later, but I've done a little bit of research to see. Definitely there's no other account in the biblical narrative, and I can't find anything in the historical narrative uh, outside of biblical accounts of other countries, other nations, other peoples using this particular tactic. So it's an unconventional idea that they both uh, carry a sword and a tool at the same time as they build this wall and prepare for a defense against an uh, a enemy that's at their gates. So he's a leader of invention. And lastly, he's a leader of adapt, uh, adaptation. Uh, to defend an active building project on this scale required uh, vigilance and adaptability. Long work days were instituted and to be constantly ready. And so here's this leader in Nehemiah 
that he is strategic. Now, we know it is not his strategery. It is not his strategy uh, that, that is the outcome of the victory and the ability of the people of God. We know that he is God's man to advance God's kingdom and God's plans. But God uses this strategy in Nehemiah's leadership. But I would even say even more importantly is his servant leadership. So not only do we see his strategic leadership, we see his servant leadership. You go there to ver- in the second half of verse 16. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. And so these leaders, Nehemiah included, because we see this language he uses there in verse 21, we labored at the work. So he was not leading from an ivory tower. He was not leading from arm's distance. That Nehemiah was a servant leader. That he didn't just strategize and mobilize. He and the leaders grabbed their tools, grabbed their weapons, and they manned the wall. So this is the kind of leader that we see in Nehemiah. One who is strategic and one who is a servant. And we too must trust in God's provision. As the people of Israel, they are placing their faith in the Lord by trusting in God's provision. His provision of this leader, Nehemiah. So we too must trust in God's provision. Our greatest need, as we've said already, is not a wall. It's not a physical defense from an external enemy. Our greatest need is to be rescued from the penalty of our sins. That is our absolute greatest need. As we said in our youth uh, Bible study this morning, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are in Christ and those who are not. Our greatest need is to be found in Christ. And God has provided for us by sending the greatest of servant leaders, His Son. Jesus said Himself that He did not come to be served but to serve. He laid down his rights that he might accomplish his mission, that is to do the will of the Father and to save all of those who are his. And so not only is Jesus a servant like we see in Nehemiah, but he also has a strategic plan, a plan of redemption. And we talk about this often on Sunday mornings, this uh, redemptive history, this plan of the gospel, this intentional plan of, of God to save his people from Genesis to Revelation, from Genesis to now even. This plan of redemption, a master plan that is revealed throughout Scripture and is unfolding today. This is the strategy of our true servant leader, Jesus Christ. And it's unfolding until his return, as we sing about just a few moments ago. So Israel demonstrates their faith, not only in trusting in the Lord's provision, but also by participating in God's plan. And so there's this plan that Nehemiah has, there's this plan that the Lord has. And so they trust in the Lord by participating in God's plan. Now, it's one thing to say that you trust in God's provision, right? It's one thing to say that you trust in His plan. It's one thing to see and to understand His plan and trust in it. But it's another to participate in that plan. So they demonstrate their faith, not just by trusting in His provision, but by participating in His plan. Now, imagine with me, if you will, if you were a young man in Jerusalem at this time. You're inspired by Nehemiah's speech. You're inspired by his persona. You hear the great things of Nehemiah. You hear all these stories of him. You know where he comes from. He's this Persian governor and he's one of us. And he's, he's given us this great charge. You believe in him as a leader. You see the wisdom and the logic in which he's proposing to take up arms and build together. And then you got to clock in. <laughs> then you got to go get a sword. <laughs> and you got to get a shovel. 
and you got to get on that wall in which you can see, as Adam pointed out to us very well last week, you can see the enemies on all the horizons being surrounded. It's one thing to trust in his provisions. another thing to participate in God's plan. Now you actually have to do it. You must demonstrate real belief in God's provision by participating in his plan. You must strap on a sword and take up a trowel. You must expose yourself to the enemy while you're rebuilding the wall. This is a combination of faith and works. But God's people, they did just that. When you look at verse 16 and verse 21. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. Half held their spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. The leaders stood behind them. Then in verse 21, so he labored at the work. Half of them held the spears in the break of dawn until the stars came out. And so we see this picture that it's not just some of them, it's all of them. When you have half doing this and half doing that, guess how much that is? That's all. I'm not a mathematician, but that's everybody. And we're going to see their unity in just a moment. But they do just that. They demonstrate their faith. Not just in God's provision, but by participating in His plan. God's plan was to rebuild the wall, and God's people, by faith, joined Him in that work. They participated in that work. His plan was to rebuild this wall for Jerusalem for all the reasons that we walk through and will continue to walk through. But the act of building the wall, they trust in His provision by participating in His plan. And although God could have accomplished this plan of Jerusalem's restoration in any number of ways, He chose to use His people to bring His plan about. And this is a great visual and a great reminder of how faith and works go hand in hand. Had the Jews just believed only in their hearts and the provision and plan of God and not taken their post along the wall, then they would have demonstrated a lack of belief and a lack of faith in the Lord. Of course, I can't help but to think, and I'm sure you as well are thinking even now, of what James says, not James Terrence, not James Douglas, but the James, the author of the book of James, what he says about this very topic. Go with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. It's always a little tricky to find. Right after Hebrews. James chapter 2. A familiar passage for us. In light of, of what we're talking about here and participating in God's plan, this idea of believing in His provision and trusting in His plan, let's just want to read this passage from 14 through the end of the chapter there. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it is done, uh, if it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. 
you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the name, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we see this, um, we see this message in Nehemiah, we see it in James, we see it throughout all of Scripture, in so many different places. And although we often think of this passage in James as it relates to salvation, it can be applied to all of the works of God. Just as the Israelites joining in the work demonstrated uh, their, their faith in God's plan of provision, our works do the same. Our works do the same. Our works do not contribute to our salvation. I believe everyone here realizes that and knows that. Our works don't contribute to our salvation, but our inevitable outflow, inevitable and natural outflow of genuine faith. Whenever we genuinely believe in the Lord, when we genuinely trust Him, when we genuinely desire to participate in His plan, works will flow from that. Faith is itself a gift from God. However, this faith is never alone in the life of a believer. We do not have faith alone. It is always accompanied by works, not as a basis for our justification, but as evidence of the transformative power of the Holy Spirit within us. Works in this sense validate our faith by demonstrating the reality of our union with Christ. I know that's a lot, but this big picture is if you're going to if you trust in God's provision, if you are numbered amongst those who have repented and believed in Jesus and are redeemed, then like these in Nehemiah 4, you will not just trust in His provision, you will participate in His plan. And there are a number of, an untold number of ways in which God is working. But the greatest work that the Lord is doing is the work of salvation through His Son, Jesus. And if we believe that to be true, we will not just desire this salvation, but we will be active in God's plan. So how does he include us in his plan of salvation? You say, John, salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. Absolutely. God does not need us. If you ever think the Lord needs you, you're grossly mistaken. But yet he chooses to use us. He uses us in his greatest plan. And that is the plan of salvation. By making the name of Jesus known, by sharing the good news of Jesus to others, by inviting others to repent and believe in Jesus. As James and Adam have pointed out, God is building his holy city. And so let us join him in that work. Let us participate in the plan of God. So not only do we see Israel trusting in God's provision and participating in his plan, but we also see them standing with God's people. They are standing together as God's people. It is very clear from our passage, as we've already said, that the people in the city were united on this effort. We don't see any division. We don't see any splinter cell of those in the city. We see those, as we said earlier in verse 12, of those who come out from away from the city. But those in the city 
are all on the same page. They're all in unison. They are following Nehemiah, ultimately following the Lord, and they're about the words, the Lord's work. They're trusting in His provision. They're participating in His plan, but they're standing with God's people. Everyone in the city is working and defending, every single one of them. Nehemiah has rallied everyone together. He has called them to remember the Lord. You got that in verse 14. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So he's rallied everyone together. He's called them to remember the Lord and to fight for their families and their homes. And in their work, as we said, they are very spread out. But at the sound of the battle trumpet, they would gather together and be ready to fight the enemy. As we said, this group, they're not warriors. They're not builders. Yet God is going to use them for both. And what He uses in this group is not their ability, but He uses their unity. He uses their unity. Now, before we talk about their unity, it's important as we, as we see that pivotal verse there in verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. It's a beautiful verse. And the, the, subject, the, the, the subject there, the emphasis is God, right? God will fight for us. God will fight our battles. We're going to rally together, and it's not how good of a warrior you are. It's not how good of a builder you are. It's not how much you trained or practiced. It's not how quickly we come together. It's not how many. It is ultimately God who brings their success. It is God who fights for us. Now, if you're believing the Lord and trusting the Lord, that's really all you need, right? A reminder that God is fighting for us. And that's a reminder that we need today. It is a powerful and needed reminder that God fights for us then and now. But notice two other key words. Our God will fight for us. They also need each other. Now God's enough. We get that. But in God's plan and His great design, He's not left us alone. God could have had one great warrior out there who could have built the whole wall himself and defended everything, and done all the things himself, but that's not what he chose to do. He chose to use not the person of Israel, but the people of Israel. We need one another. As God's people, we are in this together. And this is made very true in the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to read all of these passages, but I want to kind of just highlight a number of passages for you. You can write these down. If you want to study these, study these this week, that'd be great. Paul says in Romans 12, 4 through 5, he uses an analogy of the body of the church to show the interconnectedness of believers. That although we are individual members, we are part of one body. In Romans 15, 5 through 7, Paul prays for the Roman believers to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together they may glorify God. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul urges the believers to maintain unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace where he famously highlights one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. So all those who are in Christ are one. There's unity there. We see in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, the believers should have the same mind of love and accord, urging them to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than themselves. So unity, humility, not conceit, 
In Colossians 3, 12-14, Paul instructs the Colossians to have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. 1 Peter 3, 8-9, Peter calls all believers to be of one mind, sympathetic, loving one another, tender-hearted, humble-minded, and not repaying evil for evil. And finally, in 1 John 4, 11-12, John writes that if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we see this clear picture in Nehemiah that they're coming together. We see in the picture in the New Testament that the church should be unified, the church should be united Additionally, we've talked about this often, it's been a while, but there are 59 one another's in the New Testament. And that just make a great series. 59 one another's. Here's just a few. Don't worry, I'm not going through all 59. I'm going to do 58. But here's a handful of love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, teach and admonish one another, submit to one another, offer hospitality to one another, confess your sins to one another, be at peace with one another, edify one another, consider one another better than yourselves, do not lie to one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. We need modern day context for that, okay? But... Be kind to one another. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Do not judge one another. Do not provoke one another. Do not be envious of one another. Carry one another's burdens. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and live in harmony with one another. So you can't read the New Testament and not see the same message that we see in Nehemiah 4 and see the unity, to see the one another that's needed for the people of God. That by faith we stand with God's people. Just as Israel could face opposition in their day by standing with, with one another, so can we. We need one another. And we can only do, we can only do unto one another gathered together. We can do this some on Sunday mornings as we fill this place, as we come together on Sundays and see each other and hug each other and, and chat for a moment. We can do some of the one another's, but we do more of the one another's in community groups throughout the week. This is how we love one another. This is how we pray for one another. This is how we show hospitality to one another. This is how we carry each other's burdens. It's through gathering throughout the week. It's not just a program. It's not just something for the church to do. It is one of the foundational things that makes the church gathered. So we gather on Sunday mornings. We gather in groups to one another. If you're disconnected from the body, get connected. And only you can do that. Let us stand with God's people. And as Adam pointed out last week in the first part of chapter 4, God's people will meet opposition. And Jesus did a better job than Adam. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will meet opposition. It's a promise of Jesus that we will have opposition, that we will encounter trouble. It is inevitable. The opposition will come in different forms, at different times, and with different intensity. As God's people, we will, we will have opposition. And we can only be prepared to take on this opposition by looking to the Lord in faith. By faith, trusting in His provision. By faith, participating in His plan. And by faith, standing with His people. So, as we close this morning... Let us remember this lesson from Nehemiah and from the people of Israel. 
facing opposition and insurmountable odds with faith, unity, and action. Just as Nehemiah was, was leading with faith and trusting in God's provision and as he rallied God's people, not only to believe, but to act, we are called to do the same. Our faith in God is not a passive stance, but an active trust that propels us into to participation of his divine plan, working together as one body in Christ. So let us, let this be our call to action this week, to engage regularly with our faith, to participate eagerly in God's work, and to stand firmly as God's people. So as we prepare to leave and to go into this week, let us remember these things together. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for this chance to gather as your people, to hear your word. Lord, we thank you that we, by faith, can trust in your provision. We can participate in your plans, and we can stand with your people. And Lord, I pray that at whatever point that we are struggling in these things, Lord, that we would be encouraged this morning, not by our ability, but by your spirit, that you strengthen us, Lord, to do these things even more, to trust you and join you and stand together even more, Lord, for the glory of Christ and the good of your people. Pray, Lord, as we sing this morning, as we come to your communion table, Lord, even as we give, that we do these things, Lord, with, with one accord. We do these things in the name of Jesus. And that you'd help us to respond accordingly in these next few moments. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.